Don't turn a blind eye You can hear the people cry Wake up and be strong And fight for what is wrong Welcome to Bold Conversations About Race, a podcast brought to you by Surge National in collaboration with Small Beans Comedy and produced by White People for Black Lives. I'm one of your hosts, Thalia Ferlito, and I use they, them pronouns. And I'm your other host, Yvette Ole, and I also use they, them pronouns. Today, we are answering your questions. So we have a very special mailbag episode. So we get some very interesting audience questions coming your way that we're going to talk about today. So the first one we got going on is, I'll start with a question related to your most recent episode on the war on drugs. Living in rural areas for most of my life, I've witnessed firsthand the devastating effects of certain drugs on small communities. And although I completely agree that people of color are targeted for incarceration, I also know that the fact that white people are often allowed free reign with these substances, and it contributes to the devastation of communities as well. So my question is, how will we keep these alternatives to prisons from becoming a sort of trap for people of color? Well, thank you, Carrie, for that question. Well, I think the question hits several points. But before we dive in, I would like to say that first and foremost, most people that use drugs don't have problematic relationships with drugs. The vast majority. The folks that have problematic relationships with drugs that harm themselves, their loved ones, and their communities are only a small fraction of drug users. And Unisa Hernandez, who we had uh, on our UCLA live episode, really dug into that piece. So just baseline, most folks that take drugs are okay, and they're not harming their communities. But for that small fraction of the population that, that do have those problematic relationships, in order to really address the harms that the broader community experiences, we really need to be taking a an approach of harm reduction. And I know, Dahlia, you're an expert in this. You have decades of experience. So I'm going to hand it over to you to kind of break down what harm reduction is and and some of those strategies and resources that can actually help our communities and individuals suffering from drug use. Yeah, yeah. I would love to get into it. So just for, you know, our our audience, uh, if you don't know about me, a little bit about me is uh, I have about 20 years experience working in harm reduction services from doing street-based outreach, uh, running HIV prevention and, and substance abuse treatment programs that are harm reduction based, um, and doing sex education in high schools, condom distribution, and so forth. So uh, what I'd like to talk a little bit about is the definition of harm reduction. So harm reduction is a philosophy and a method of service delivery that really was like a punk way of doing public health that emerged in the 90s when folks saw that their loved ones and their community members were using uh, injection drugs and they saw the harmful impact that injecting drugs had because people didn't have access to clean needles to be able to inject their drugs with, right? So like when you don't have access to clean needles, then you are putting yourself at an additional risk for acquiring bloodborne pathogens like HIV or hepatitis and so forth. So, you know, and, and abscesses and there's all these all these things that can happen if you're if you don't have clean needles. So folks literally like risk their freedom and their lives passing out clean needles 
out of, you know, out of trunks of cars and in their backpacks because it was completely illegal at that time. It was drug paraphernalia. And so they they risked the, you know, the cops coming in. They they risked everything to get their friends and their loved ones clean needles. And because of that punk approach, eventually over time that actually got that expanded as a as a public health approach that says, you know what? If you're using drugs, it doesn't mean that you are not able to make decisions about your life. It says we empower you, you know what's best for you, and we're gonna meet you where you're at, and we're gonna give you the services that you want along the way that match what you feel you need in your life. And so, which is a paradigm shift. So when we looked at services before, or that do not have a harm reduction approach, they're abstinence-based. So they put up all these barriers before somebody can actually access services. So they'll say, you know, you have to be clean and sober for X number of days. Um, you have to have employment. You have to, you know, adhere to a certain treatment regimen for 60 days or 90 days, whatever it is. But you'd have this uh, service provider model saying, we know what's better for you, the drug user, than you know for yourself. And therefore, you have to follow our rules. And what that did was just turn people off. They just decided, you know what, like, I'm not going to do this. It's like too many rules, too many restrictions. I'm not there. And so what it ended up doing was denying an an opportunity for an engagement uh, possibility between services and a person who's using drugs. So what people in harm reduction do is they say, hey, like we're gonna give you services and on your own terms. And so there are folks that will actually provide clean needles to people who inject drugs while also providing them sterile equipment for injecting drugs education on overdose reversal, as well as actual naloxone, or it's also called Narcan, which is a medication that can actually reverse overdoses of opioids in real time and actually save lives. So it further empowers people to take charge of their lives. And then if folks are ready, then there, there's a, a, a conduit for services that says, okay, well, you know what? When you're ready, I'm here. And when that person is ready, they know where to go to get other kinds of substance abuse treatment services when they're ready. And so this is a highly effective model and it's used for a number of different public health issues because over time, the, the paradigm shift has changed. And so for over the last 20 years, service providers in the public health field and in other fields realize that harm reduction actually works and not a punitive approach to substance abuse or other other public health issues. So the, the problem really has been that there has not been a political will to fully fund and support the successful implementation of harm reduction services. So harm reduction includes giving people, you know, safe and sterile injection equipment and, and, and needles. It also includes things like condom distribution. So when we think of both of these, 
there are politicians that firmly believe if you give somebody a clean needle, then you are encouraging them to use drugs. If you give somebody a condom, then you are encouraging them to have sex. But we know that the science says that just that's simply not true. Every single evidence-based study for decades upon decades upon decades has shown that this is absolutely not the case. So that whole ideology is not based in any form of science, but it is politically popular. So what that has amounted to was restrictions on the ability for federal funds or local funds to be able to fund syringe, syringes outright or syringe exchange programs. So there's actually been bans on funding for those types of services. It's also looked like having abstinence-only sexual education offered in middle schools and high schools across the country, even though we know that comprehensive sex education actually works and does not lead to more, more young people having more sex or unprotected sex or unintended pregnancies. What it actually leads to is people making informed choices about their lives and having the resources that they need to stay safe to help mitigate any consequences that they have for the choices that they make versus some sort of moral crusade to say, well, we're just going to restrict your behavior outright. And so that's that's kind of like the basis of harm reduction. Yeah, and this ideology that you're breaking down, Dahlia, also distracts from actually addressing the root causes of why some people may have those problematic relationships with substances, right? We're talking right. about underlying mental health issues. We're talking about unaddressed trauma. We're talking about poverty. And so when we're actually able to provide people with housing, with good paying jobs, with mental health treatment, that can drastically alleviate their need to have a dependence on a drug and to self-medicate in right. order to get through that trauma. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so the other piece, really, when we're talking about trauma, is that our current system is structured to punish people who are already traumatized, right? So you, you know, there's a saying that is popularized here in Los Angeles, which is you can't get well in a cell. And that means whether you have mental health issues or substance abuse uh, or addiction issues. And so the reality is people who are turning to substances have some form of underlying trauma. And there's, there's a doctor by by the name of Gabor Mate. He wrote a book called um, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, which we can link to. And he talks about the brain chemistry of people who have experienced trauma as far back as literally in the womb and how that restructures and rewires your brain. And what that does is it leaves you vulnerable to needing more connection. And if you don't have connection, you're going to search for connection in other ways. And oftentimes it's through what, you know, public health professionals will call maladaptive behaviors, which are like behaviors like, you know, drug use. And so when you're trying to, you know, find relief and remedy from the pain that you feel and the trauma that you feel and you're looking toward drugs, you don't need an interaction with a law enforcement officer. You don't need a jail bed or a prison bed. You actually need care. You need love. You need connection. You need community care. And that is what's going to get people well. It's not throwing them in a cell. And here in Los Angeles, we actually have the largest mental health institution in the country, which is called the LA County Jail System. Mm -hmm. So more people with mental health needs are put in jails than in mental health clinics and hospitals. 
that is how far off we have been as a county and as a nation in terms of actually responding to the needs of our community members. And the criminalization of drugs is a really important piece to hit on as well. Not only did marijuana convictions incarcerate thousands and thousands of people, and the the sick and twisted part is now that it's legal in California, large businesses are profiting off of marijuana now that it's legalized. But there's still folks serving time in Mm -hmm. jail here in California under marijuana convictions. Mm -hmm. It's so sick Mm -hmm. and twisted. And folks are still faced with all of these barriers. Even the folks that were released still have many, many barriers because of those drug convictions. Yeah. And and then there's the, the race component. When you look at the demographic of a cannabis industry, you know, owners, like people who are actually both producing and and owning the dispensaries in which uh, the product is being sold, largely white, largely male. When you look at who's actually in the jails for cannabis use or cannabis distribution, it's largely black, indigenous and people of color who are still in jail. So now that it's become legal, we, we're seeing who's actually profiting from the business and the economic element while people are still suffering from the destruction of criminalization of cannabis. Yeah. And and capitalism plays a key role here, right? So folks are monetizing on this new industry. And also capitalism is contributing to that lack of connection that you were talking about, Dahlia. When folks are not able to, to sustain themselves under a capitalist system, that creates more disconnection, that creates more mental health issues, more trauma. And then the criminalization bit, the the fact that certain drugs that can actually help folks recover from that trauma, like um, MDMA, those drugs that can help are made illegal. The Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, MAPS, actually runs really successful uh, clinics and programs and studies using MDMA in other parts of the world. But because it's illegal here in the United States, they can't run their studies here. But what has been shown over and over again is that MDMA can help folks recuperate from certain types of trauma like post-traumatic stress disorder, from alcoholism. Mm -hmm. And so we're preventing our communities from having access to the medicine because this is medicine that can actually help folks move through that trauma. Right. Yeah. Thank you for pointing that out. We have a second question from Carrie says, from what you have pointed out and what I I have and I'm currently witnessing, the law is being used to further the agenda of racist groups because they pick and choose which laws to enforce and which ones to not enforce. So it's hard for me to believe that changing the wording of a law or getting rid of a law will have any effect at all. They're already breaking the law by targeting individuals. As far as non-citizens go, most of those laws are and were already against the Constitution, but they were passed and enforced anyway. I want so badly to help, but... How do you fight unfair people fairly? How does changing laws and getting rid of laws help when the problem is that the laws are not being followed to begin with? I mean, this is a great question. And I think a lot of folks listening might feel this way. I would say, speaking of harm reduction, Mm -hmm. passing policies, changing policy is a harm reduction measure. 
just a few years ago, uh, several folks here in California drafted what was called Senate Bill 180. And what Senate Bill 180 did was eliminate a three-year sentence enhancement for prior drug convictions. So a sentence enhancement is additional sentencing on top of your baseline sentence. So for example, in the case of SB 180, prior to that bill, folks with prior drug convictions can receive three extra years for each prior drug conviction on top of their baseline conviction. So we're talking about folks that have chronic drug use problems, folks that were incarcerated for marijuana possession, for marijuana use. And what ended up happening is that folks, instead of serving three or five years, were serving upwards of 15 years in prison because of the three-year sentence enhancement. But what California organizers were able to do is eliminate that sentence enhancement. And so it was bringing folks back home. And over the last three to four years, grassroots-led policies have released thousands, if not tens of thousands of people from prisons and jails. That saves lives. So we can't discount the benefits of amending or passing policies However, that should not be the end-all be-all. That's why we need to organize. That's why we need to be building power in the communities. That's actually how we're going to enact change, not just simply, simply through policy. Policy is one strategy, but it's not the only strategy. Right, right. And it really, the, the other piece to, to think about is, you know, not only do we have limitations on the implementation of policies. It's also about the choices of our elected officials and what they want to decide are the laws that they want to follow or the laws that they want to disregard, right? And do you want to speak a little bit to kind of like the importance of kind of like who is in, you know, leadership of, of our governance? Yeah, absolutely. Well, here in California, we're often thought of as this liberal stalwart, this, you know, shining light of liberalism, when in fact, our democratic establishment is just as regressive as other places. And although we've been passing some good legislation, the folks at the top have really slowed down progress. We still have one of the largest prison and jail systems on the planet. Los Angeles, which is thought of as this super, super liberal city and super liberal county, we have the largest jail system in the world. And the reason that we have these massive incarceration systems is that the folks at the top are controlling the budgets. The folks at the, at the top are so focused on really incremental change that is actually not going to liberate our folks. So we need to not just change policies, we need to change our leadership. And we need to fundamentally change the systems. Mic drop there, y'all. So we got a couple questions from our friend Kim. The first is, I sign petitions, I make calls, I do public comments, I show up for protests, I organize with local coalitions, but it doesn't feel like it is actually affecting things at the systemic level. How do we actually impact the health system, the criminal justice system, etc.? They feel so big and untouchable. Is there an example of a system that has changed for the better? And I want to say, Kim, 
I feel you. I feel that exhaustion in the question. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. I mean, the, the long and short answer is yes, there are so many examples of right. fundamental change. And we can look to Los Angeles again. Uh, just two years ago, everyone told us that it was inevitable that LA County was going to build two new jails, a mental health jail and a women's jail that would have been built on toxic toxic soil. We heard this from the county leadership. We even heard that from our own coalition partners that it was inevitable. But we kept pressing on. We did not lose hope. We stalled the process. We organized. We mobilized. We wrote damn good policies. We we wrote really great analysis. And it was a 10-year battle. This was a slow-moving process. But we won. Mm -hmm. And it's a great example of even when we lose, we can still win. The county had already signed the contracts with the developers. The county had already done the environmental analysis and they concluded that, well, despite the soil being toxic, we're still going to build on it. But that did not stop us. And because we kept going, we won. When we, you know, the the old mantra, when we fight, we win. Mm -hmm. This is true. Yeah. It just might take us longer. And we can't be giving in to this impulse for instant gratification when we know that this is a long game. Right. And, you know, and that is the, the, the system at play that is constantly trying to tell us that you're never going to win. We're too powerful. And they do everything that they can to confuse us, to exhaust us, to let us know that whatever your efforts are, are futile. We're still going to win. Uh, but you know what? It's just not true. There's actually a great book called When We Fight, We Win that actually documents a number of successful people struggles over over time, over decades. And so there's plenty of examples that when the people rise up and we demand shit, that we actually will get it. Will there be fierce opposition? Absolutely. There's always going to be opposition. But power concedes nothing without demand, says Frederick Douglass. And that means that we need to continue fighting and we need to continue demanding and we need to continue staying in the streets and we need to continue, you know, uh, with with the phone banks and the 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 emails and the you know everything that that you just listed, Kim. We got to keep doing that because if we're not doing that, things would just be exponentially more difficult for us. And so we're constantly trying to get the best possible conditions for our advocacy, and we have to do that by sustaining the pressure every single day. And also, Kim, take care of yourself. Yes, you know, take breaks when you need to. And I think that's why it's so important to continue building power, continue ex continuing to expand our coalitions, our networks, our movement, so that when you do need to take a break and replenish yourself, you can do that. So when we talk about the harmful systems that were baked into society since its inception, we have, we have so many examples such as like chattel slavery or a time when women couldn't vote or a time when black folks couldn't couldn't vote uh, when there was segregation in the military when there was uh, segregation in the schools when you know so there were there's a number of systems that we were able to fight back against to be able to create change now is it the change that we want not completely. We know that the power structures are are still working against us but at the end of the day Dahlia, we're still making progress, right? And change can take time. 
it can look like incremental change. But as long as we're still moving in the right direction, we're going to get there and we're going to have many wins along the way. Right. And it's all about chipping away. We're chipping away at all of the harmful systems that are to get to the liberated future that will be. You know, but it's also important to acknowledge that these systems of oppression sometimes are like whack-a-mole, right? Right. Like they'll morph into other things like chattel slavery morphed into Jim Crow, morphed into segregation, morphed into mass incarceration. But the key thing to cling on to in this really dark period in our country is the fact that support for those systems has contracted. Exactly. Yeah. And that that is the piece of like, you know, trying to change what's considered normal and that cultural shift in society. And that's what we have to hang on to as a sign of progress, even if we're not, you know, getting all of the other wins that we want to see as we're chipping away at these different systems. All right. So our resident political scientist, this one is for you. (laughs) Also from our friend Kim. I see how capitalism puts profit over people. What would you replace capitalism with? It seems like every economic system has its pros and cons. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It sure does. Um, But it's also important to, to identify the political systems, the form of governance that are coupled with economic systems, right? Because we can have a communist form of economic systems, like in the case of Cuba, but with an authoritarian regime, right? And it undercuts any of the benefits or arguments around a a communist economic system. We have the same thing in Russia. It, It was an authoritarian regime, and I would say it's still an authoritarian regime, right? And so it's the the political system the system of governance is just as important as the economic system. But to focus on the economic system, I would say a refocusing on local economies, building out and supporting local businesses. Right now during the pandemic, these massive companies like Amazon are profiting hand over fist from the pandemic. Companies like Walmart destroyed local economies Government subsidies of agribusiness destroyed local economies worldwide. A great example of that was Monsanto. Mm -hmm. So Monsanto has genetically modified corn and it was cheaper for Mexicans to buy the genetically modified corn products exported from the United States than it was for Mexicans to buy corn in their own country. And just for a little context, 86% of the Mexican agricultural economy is corn. Corn is native to Mexico. They have over 60 native varieties of corn. It is an essential component. And the exporting, the subsidizing of U.S. exports into Mexico was destroying their local economies to the point where indigenous communities in southern Mexico had to migrate north to the United States because their local agricultural economies were being demolished. So that led to what's called the feminization of labor migration, where women from indigenous communities in southern Mexico migrated to the border and were going into businesses that were U.S. run 
businesses on the border, feminized labor, like textile production. And when the U.S. started shutting down those industries to go to China, suddenly we had a huge population of women at the border that were now forced to either cross the border into the United States, entered into sex trade. It's been devastating to Mexico. So that's just one example of how subsidizing something like corn can actually have reverberating effects around the world. Wow. I don't even know what to say to that. It's just, it's devastating and sad. And then gets us into another conversation, which we'll be talking about in a couple episodes around immigration mm. and how, you know, it's, you know, tying American foreign policy, American foreign economic policy mm-hmm. that devastates the economy of other countries and then forces migration to this country. Absolutely. But just getting back into the local economy question, focusing on supporting small local businesses, Black-owned businesses, immigrant-owned businesses in our neighborhoods, in our communities, is what we should be supporting. That's where the government support should be focused on, really developing those communities that have been divested from for generations, those communities that have been criminalized, focusing our development in those areas and encouraging folks and incentivizing folks to eat locally, to shop locally. That's the way that we move away from the monopolization of products, from the really harmful mass production of products internationally. I'm talking about products that are manufactured in China with little oversight, with very few restrictions, with toxic ingredients that we're digesting, that we're exposing ourselves to. So this push for this, you know, globalization of capitalist structures as the, the, the keystone of our economy is actually really harmful, not just for communities around the world, but, you know, here in our backyards. Mm-hmm. And we're going to continue on this tip around a a little political science 101 conversation with a second question here from an anonymous uh, source. I hear people talking about fascism. That brings to mind Nazi Germany and feels really extreme. Is fascism really happening in our country? And what are some examples of modern day fascism? Take it away. Yes, it is. Fascism (laughs) is alive and well in the United States. But I I do want to make a distinction between fascism and national socialism, which is what we saw in Germany in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. So fascism existed in China under Sun Yat-sen. It existed in in Italy under Mussolini, in Spain with Franco. So there have been a lot of examples of fascism around the world. And, and the the key elements of fascism include authoritarian regime, suppression of marginalized groups, and suppression of democracy. So we see those elements are consistent with national socialism, but there's also this additional element of white supremacy, which I think is very particular to Nazism. And Nazism has been alive and well in the United States for a very long time. The idea that that fascism and white supremacy came along with Trump 
is a flat out lie. I know, Dahlia, you've been studying white supremacy for a really long time. And as our resident white person, <laughs> I would love to hear more about what fascism and white supremacy have looked like in our country. Okay, well, uh, <laughs> well, I think it's important for us to, well, I like that we're first getting more distinct and more nuanced on this conversation around the difference between fascism and national socialism, and that there is this component that needs to be addressed around like white supremacy as being um, a part of uh, national socialism. And so we know that white supremacy as an ideology has uh, taken various forms since the found founding of our country, really. So when you think about, you know, even back in 1600s, right, there was the foundation of white supremacy when Christopher Columbus came here and, you know, destroyed Native Americans, right? Or when the slave, the transatlantic slave trade um, began and began uh, literally importing African people to labor uh, under white landowners, right? So that's just like the sort of early iteration of white supremacy, but the ideology itself um, kind of continued to manifest in terms of when we look at like specific laws that actually provided benefits to people who were considered white. So there was a period of time in which there was an economic system that was created um, you know, ar around the labor of African slaves, of indigenous people um, to to provide, you know, exp an exploited labor pool um, to landowners and, and, and business people who are looking to profit over on, you know, various products such as cotton or sugar. However, this led to uh, African slaves indentured white folks because there were white folks who were in similar conditions as uh, African slaves and indigenous people in terms of how they were living, in terms of the oppression that they were experiencing and the conditions that they were living in that were uh, in how they were being exploited because of the planter class, the wealthy white landowners. Um, and so there was a point at which all those folks were were unifying together to fight back against the planter class. And so there was a realization that there were more people who they were oppressing than there were of the planter class. So they had to figure out a way to continue to maintain a system of dominance. And so they they created something called whiteness that began to get um, baked into laws in this country. And we get we began to actually see the term white. But prior to that, um, whiteness was not an actual category. And so once we began to see these laws that afforded certain privileges and, and benefits to white people who were not the owning class, but uh, were at least not African slaves or indigenous people, um, they began to be part of the system that would uh, um, uphold a system of white supremacy so that the planter class could continue benefiting and profiting off of the labor of African folks, of indigenous people, and of uh, white indentured servants. And what you're describing, Dahlia, is actually a key characteristic of fascism, which is the suppression of a certain class of people in order to uh 
in order to accumulate capital. Right. So that's a key characteristic across different fascist examples um, throughout history. As far as white supremacy showing up, there's consistently been a relationship between white supremacy and people who have benefited from capitalism. And it's a way to maintain a system of power and a system of control. So even though, you know, as we talk about things morph and things shape shift, um, we're, we're looking at whiteness being used as a way to divide people, to divide, you know, all of us, to conquer each of us. I mean, and that's why, you know, folks may often hear that race is a social construct. And this is a cl the connection between racial identity and capitalism is inextricable. Like you described, Dahlia, folks became white in order to justify the suppression of certain peoples. Right. Right. And so when we're talking about, you know, the, the rise of fascism um, and and it's tied to white supremacy. Um, so we're going to like kind of like loop back around to really think about, you know, the history of the national national socialism and um, and the playbook of fascists. So, you know, we had this question of like, you know, is that really happening now? And as as a vet pointed out a few minutes ago, you know, there is a little bit of a of a fascist playbook at hand. So there are examples of what we can see that the current administration is doing that are very much aligned with the, the historical uh, expressions of a fascistic governance that dates back, you know, many a decade. Am I am I right? Yes, absolutely. So from scape scapegoating certain communities by uh, ginning up fear and, and anxieties and scarcity mentality. Xenophobia. Xenophobia is another key characteristic uh, characteristic of fascism calling out the media right as 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 fake news you know fascistic re regimes will have control over the media and will use the media as a tool for their own propaganda and they're not allowed to actually uh use their own journalistic um uh powers to talk against the 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 regime right and we're we're kind of seeing there have been laws that have been created that make it so that people who are whistleblowers for journalists are no longer protected. And we need to be concerned about that. And that is another example of a fascistic re regime happening. Yeah. So baseline, it, it's not hyperbolic to say that we are experiencing witnessing and fighting back against fascism in this moment and a really crystal clear example of that was just this Tuesday during the presidential debate when Trump was asked to denounce white supremacy and specifically the Proud Boys. And he said that he's calling on them to stand back and stand by. Right. Right. And so we all should be concerned about what we're seeing right now when we have a president that for the first time in the history of this very complicated and Im imperfect country that would not agree to a peaceful transition of power. Um, we should be concerned. That's another example of, of fascism at play. And if you want to see the parallels between today and Nazi Germany, you should do your research on the conditions of Germany in the 20s, in the 30s, before, you know, Nazis were in power. But look at the political and the social climate, the economic climate that gave rise to the Third Reich. And I think that when you look at that history, 
and you look at the decade leading up to the rise of, of the Hitler regime, you'll see lots of examples that say that we're on a similar trajectory. Am I right? No, absolutely, Dahlia. It's important to remember that, you know, in the late 20s, we were seeing worldwide economic decline. So we saw the stock market crash here in the United States, and it had reverberating effects around the world, including in Germany, where, in fact, the German mark, their currency, it was so inflated that it was cheaper to use the German mark as wallpaper than it was to use it as currency. That is how devastating the global depression was in the 1920s and 30s. Yeah, yeah. And so before we, you know, close out this question, you know, because we talk about fascist, I want to also talk a little bit about anti-fascist, right? So our president loves to throw around this word Antifa, Antifa. This is the, you know, the, 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 a, a left-wing extremist group. Um, and to the credit of Joe Biden, actually, to my surprise, um, Joe Biden pointed out that Antifa is actually an, an ideology, right? Um, and Antifa is short for anti-fascist. So as we've been sitting here and discussing fascism, I would presume that most people who are listening and those of us that are doing this recording are sitting here believing that fascism or having an authoritarian ruler or authoritarian ruler coupled with white supremacy known as national socialism, we would suggest likely that most people would say that they're against it. So if you feel that you are against fascism, that means you are anti-fascist, right? And so Antifa is an ideology that says that, you know, we need to push back against fascism. And if you want to, you know, enhance your knowledge about Antifa, I would encourage you to read the book Antifa, the anti-fascist handbook, and that will give you a, a deep history about how people have been rising up and fighting back against fascistic regimes all across the world, literally for a hundred plus years. And that goal is to preserve our freedom and our democracy in a society and to prevent the concentration of power in any one individual. So that's what Antifa is really about, y'all. Now we're going to get into some more prickly questions. <laughs> <laughs> Give us the prickly audience. Um, that focus on relationships, how we actually talk to folks about these issues. So a question from Sarah is how do I talk about systemic racism with someone who is black and doesn't believe in it? I guess I'll take that one away. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, first of all, we're not quite sure. We don't have um, information about what that sort of relationship is more broadly or what the racial composition of that friendship might be. But based on how it's worded, I am going to approach this as assuming that the person who is asking this question is not a black person. And so I, I say this because um, this is a this is, you know, a vet named it a prickly uh, conversation or a tricky conversation or an awkward conversation um, when it comes to these types of dynamics that can emerge based on this topic. And so my initial instinct um, to respond to your question, Sarah, is really first um, 
letting folks know that, you know, at the end of the day, we have all grown up in a white supremacist society. It is the air we breathe. It is the water we swim in. It is around us. It is ubiquitous. And it is not just for white folks, right? So we know that um, black folks and other people of color can internalize white supremacy and internalize the messages that this country um, will often uh, give us, which is, you know, pick yourself up by the bootstraps, we're a meritocracy, and, you know, it, everybody that comes here has a shot, and if they don't make it, then, you know, it's it's their own individual failure, right? So that's, that's the American dream. That's the way that this has been pitched to all of us uh, for, you know, years since many of us who grew up in this country, we, it, it, we're indoctrinated into this thinking, right? And so I'm not surprised that, you know, there are people of all stripes that will believe that systemic racism isn't real, particularly if they have internalized the messages that we all receive for a long time. And so the other piece is that we would wanna be careful about how we can engage in this conversation um, if we are a white person. So my suggestion to you, Sarah, and to others who might be experiencing this kind of dynamic is to lead by asking questions to get at what is like underlying this person's belief system and what is it that is um, leading this person to the conclusion that systemic racism isn't real? And depending on the relationship, you can stay in that space for a period of time and really think about, you know, what is the values that are under, what are the values that are underlying this person's feelings or beliefs? And it may just end up having to hang out there for a period of time. And again, it's all because I don't really know anything more about the context of y'all's relationship or anything else. It would be um, a hard conversation for a white person to engage in this type of conversation with a person who isn't white. So I would tread lightly. Um, like I said, ask a lot of questions if you want if it's a kind of relationship that is ongoing, it's something that you can stay in conversation about. And maybe if it is appropriate at a different time, offer some information that led you to recognize that systemic racism was was a thing that you believed happened in society. Um, I don't know. Yvette, you got some thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely want to echo what you shared about white supremacy being absorbed by everyone uh, that is living not just in the United States, but globally. It's like uh, a, it's a, it's a global ideology that, of course, has impacted Black people, Indigenous people, and other people of color the most. And you know, I can't speak as a Black person, but I can speak as a Mexican immigrant that white supremacy and the assimilation into white supremacy is not just encouraged, it's forced on us. For, I remember from the time, you know, that I was four years old here in the United States, being told not to speak Spanish, uh, being discouraged from being too Mexican, you know, folks assuming that I was not smart, assuming that I would, you know, get pregnant as a teenager. Like, these were all... These were all assumptions and 
forced assimilation that I had to constantly push back on. And some folks respond by trying to be, you know, the most normative version of themselves that they can in order to not be marginalized. And even this idea of normal is part of white supremacist culture. And a friend of mine, Alok Vaid Menon, um, actually writes about this idea of normal um, and how it's code for for whiteness. Um, and they conclude that, you know, despite the, the fact that no one can actually achieve this elusive idea of normal um, and normal here being whiteness, uh, perceived proximity to it awards power and approval. So being as normative as possible, getting a degree, um, having a lot of money, um, having a heteronormative relationship, all of those things are part of white supremacy culture. And this is partially why many racialized people today respond to racism with traditional gender norms and why gender nonconforming people experience such profound cruelty. Um, and that's from Alok's uh, latest book. So... When we're coming across black, indigenous, and other people of color that are having a hard time naming the white supremacy that they're experiencing, I think it's important to treat those folks um, and those situations with a lot of care because behind that impulse to reject the idea that white supremacy even exists or that, you know, capitalism is bad or harmful is a lot of internalized trauma, a lot of, you know, colonization of our minds and our bodies and our spirits. Um, so I think it's important to, to be gentle, um, to understand, you know, that 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 hesitancy to acknowledge is is really another extension of white supremacy. And can we talk for just a second about assimilation? Because that's a big word and it goes deep. Sure. And I'm wondering, because, you know, white folks, we've assimilated, right? But, you know, that was a much longer period of time ago. So, you know, uh, we when we think about, you know, Europeans coming uh, as immigrants to the United States, when they first arrived here, they were experiencing different types of uh, uh, discrimination based on their ethnic identity, whether you were Polish or Irish or Italian or German. Mm -hmm. There were various stereotypes that went along with those ethnic identities, right? Mm -hmm. And then over time, we had the privilege to be able to shed components of our ethnic identity to be able to adopt the dominant components of whiteness essentially for our own survival, right? Mm -hmm. So that we could get those benefits so that we can build a life for ourselves to be able to survive here and not only survive eventually, it was really just, you know, thriving and dominating. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I even think about as a person who uh, is of Italian heritage, I my, my mom told me stories of my great grandfather who came here from Sicily at the turn of the century by way of New York and then eventually to Boston. And when he got to Boston, he was treated so terribly that he actually gave up the Catholic faith. He just couldn't understand that other religious people could treat people that way. And he literally just stopped going to church and would never step foot in church and never even went to church for my grandparents' wedding. And so that's, you know, the, the kinds of treatment that people 
got when they arrived here that we don't really talk about. But because, you know, as assimilation works over time, we give up so much of our cultural connections or our ethnic connections to to adopt into whiteness that uh, we've actually forgotten that experience. Yeah, I mean, there's this resounding myth that the United States is a pluralistic society that, you know, out of many one. Mm -hmm. Right. But all of the all of the nuances of people's identities, all of the ethnic characteristics are completely washed away Mm -hmm. by this idea of assimilation that we need to speak a certain way. We need to look a certain way. We need to speak a certain language. Mm -hmm. We need to behave in certain ways. And it actually makes our society less rich. It actually disconnects. We were just talking about disconnection and how it leads to mental health illness Mm -hmm. and it leads to substance abuse, Mm -hmm. giving up part of parts of ourselves, our culture, you know, demonizing parts of ourselves, right? You start, especially um, black, indigenous and other women of color being hypersexualized. Like Mm -hmm. you become ashamed of your body, Mm -hmm. ashamed of of just who you are, like physically and Mm -hmm. spiritually, that you you really start hating yourself Mm -hmm. and you start harming yourself Mm -hmm. in order to approximate whiteness, whether it's bleaching your skin, Mm -hmm. whether it's surgeries just to look more like, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, Anglo-Saxons. It's a way that white supremacy really just infects our minds Mm -hmm. into thinking that there's something inherently wrong with us. Yeah, yeah. And and white folks actually have a different response to assimilation. So with white folks who experience what is called cultural loss, we try to fill up that void with other things. And that's where you get like things like appropriation, right? Because it's like white folks feel like we're so disconnected from a culture that we have no culture. So then we take pieces of other cultures to try to fill that void, to try to feel a sense of connection to other people and to other groups. That's just one example. Our next question is along the same lines. Alex writes, my whole family votes for Trump. How do I navigate relationships with people who do not only have fundamentally different values than me, but their beliefs are harmful? I feel guilty for maintaining relationships with them, but they're my family. Ooh, you're going to have to take this one, Dahlia, because my family (laughs) does not support Trump. (laughs) For sure. And, you know, I first want to just acknowledge, like, that shit's hard. It's really hard. Um, And there there are, you know, a a lot of different kind of ways that we can go about thinking about this. And the first that, that is really coming to mind for me is... If you're not there to disrupt that echo chamber, that is the the sort of Trump, you know, s- circle, then they're not really going to get any opposing information or different perspective if you don't engage. So trying to think about staying in relationship so that you can, you know, break, f- break free or break through that that echo chamber of your family I think is, you know, one important element to consider as you're trying to navigate this really hard dynamic. And the other thing is to think about, you know, choosing your battles. Like, 
I know that, you know, when it comes to people who have such extreme and egregious views as being Trump supporters can feel really exhausting and can feel really toxic. And so you can decide what opportunities you want to engage and what are the opportunities that you're just going to wait till a different time. And then the other piece is thinking about how you enter into these conversations. And so I would recommend reading something called the White Ally Toolkit, which is like a, a workbook that can help you figure out skills and how to stay in conversation with people around race and for people who are having a hard time accepting that racism is a thing. So I think you can find some valuable tools there. And the way that you can, you know, stay in relationship or enter into those conversations is just thinking about the the time, the place, the location, like what's coming up? Like, are you, is it going to be you, the sole person at a dinner table with seven other Trump supporters? That might be a hard, you know, conversation to enter into versus a one-on-one -on -one conversation with somebody and having those you know, values-based questions and trying to get what is underneath their belief system and why it is that they feel scarcity or fear. Or are there ways that you can actually connect on a human or emotional level to what is going on that's underneath that belief system? I mean, I, I fully agree with that, Dahlia. I, taking that approach of really trying to understand what the underlying trauma is. Right. Oftentimes folks that lean towards white supremacy culture are doing so because there's something fundamentally lacking. Mm -hmm. There is harm that they've experienced or there's some emptiness there. And, you know, we talked a lot about that um, when it comes to, you know, mental health and uh, substance use issues. And so it's it's really easy to cling on to an ideology that blames somebody else, mm -hmm. that blames immigrants, that blames black, brown, and other people of color, that blames queer people. Um, and that that impulse of, of blame is often just a lack of language around identifying their own experiences and finding resolution for those challenges. Right. And the other piece, too, is, you know, the types of news that folks are consuming. You know, when you look at Fox News, it's all fear based. It's all to provoke an area of the brain chemistry to provoke a fight or flight kind of response. And so people are really heightened and really scared and literally like having that area of their brain that like responds to anxiety and trauma like constantly lit up. And so that's what you're, you know, kind of up against. So it's really challenging to try to meet such an emotional um, anxiety provoked like response with logic. So I will also like caution against something that I used to do and I still kind of lean towards and I have to talk myself around is like trying to hit people with facts <laughs> because yeah. you can name all the studies, you can name all the statistics, you can point them to, you know, articles that are peer reviewed and or like websites that are like 
what do they call it when it's like they're they're oh nonpartisan thank you yeah. uh, like nonpartisan websites so people that don't have a skin in the game about any particular direction but whatever emerged from their study findings actually supports the fact that like systemic racism is real um or you know other things or like you know science like to 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 know that actually like climate change is a, is a real thing as stated by every scientist in the world except for a few scientists in the United States that push his agenda so like when I'm telling you trying to like hit people with facts is not always going to be or most of the time it's actually not even going to be useful because they're just going to respond with you know their version of what Trump's you know administration has affectionately termed alternative facts and or whatever their belief system is that isn't even based in facts and they don't even care about the facts. So I would just suggest trying to focus on on listening as much as you can, um, breathing as often as you can, choosing when and where to engage, trying not to engage in spaces where you're like so outnumbered that it's just not even going to go anywhere. It's not even going to be a productive conversation starting with a place of love, like saying to like, you know, your family member, like, hey, like, I love you. And when we get like this, it's really hard for me to stay in relationship to you. And I really want to and I'm really trying to understand where you're coming from, and why it is that you feel so differently than I do when it comes to x, y and z. And then if you do want to introduce a fact, speak from the eye. So say, you know what, I used to think that way. Or you know, I can understand why you th think that way. And when, you know, I read something and it re really made me feel this other way. Can I talk to you a little bit about how, you know, I arrived at that conclusion? And then the very last piece I'll say is like personal safety is important. And we know that Trump supporters can often be angry, express a lot of vitriol, a lot of hate, and can also create a very unsafe environment. And particularly if you have other marginalized identities, right? So like if you're a queer person in this family and you're the only queer person or what have you, like we know that that might not be a safe, like a physically safe situation for you. And so it doesn't mean that you have to engage, you know, if you feel that your physical safety or other types of safety would be at risk. So I also want to put that out there. But if you're looking for just different tools to be able to kind of stay in relationship and stay engaged, um, yeah, I just laid a few out for you and good luck and keep asking those questions. And so we have a last but um, very important question from Hannah, one of our producers. So when Hannah told the team that she set up an email address for listener questions, Dahlia's response was, what are you going to ask us, boxers or briefs? <laughs> so Dahlia, what's the answer? <laughs> My answer is boxer briefs. I mean, you get the security of briefs and the comfort of boxers. So why not have both? I agree. They look great on you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so that wraps up our mailbag episode. I had fun. Did you enjoy yourself, Dahlia? <laughs> I had a great time. And I think we should do this again. What do you think? I agree. Send us more of your questions. We have some answers. <laughs> we, we think we have some answers we'll try to get them to you uh, if you want to send us your questions keep them coming at boldconversationspod at gmail.com or you can message us on our social media at wp4bl look forward to hearing from y'all
So we got one call to action for you. Check out showingupforracialjustice.org and get active in a chapter and stay active for the long haul, y'all. Thanks for listening, everybody. Find links to everything we talked about today in the show notes at patreon.com slash smallbeans. The show is hosted and produced by me, Dahlia Ferlito, and and me, Yvette Ole. And produced by Kareem Elzane and Hannah Jers-Allen of White People for Black Lives and Mike Swaim of Small Beans Comedy.